Hello there. We're uh, going to get started this morning in just a minute. Uh, I've got a couple of quick announcements to make this morning before we get started with our class. Uh, the first thing is that we will be having a singing night tonight at 5, uh, and we have a sign-up sheet for song leaders up here on the front table, so maybe between Bible class and worship service, if you're interested in leading a song tonight, make sure that you come up and sign your name on this and uh, what song that you're interested in leading, so that way we can make sure we have it on the screen tonight during our singing night. We're very excited about that, looking forward to it, so if you're interested in being involved, that's all up here. Uh, the other thing I'm going to announce, and I'll announce this uh, again this morning in worship service, but just to make sure I hit it as many times as I possibly can, we have a container loading coming up this Tuesday. Uh, we also do not have John, which means that Freddie's in charge, right, Freddie? Um, look at look at how he's nodding his head so, so vigorously. Uh, Freddie and I will be there to uh, run the loading. The only thing is we don't yet know what time. Uh, we're, we're shooting for 1 o'clock. That's our goal, so plan 1 o'clock on Tuesday, but we won't know until tomorrow what time the container will be there on Tuesday. So uh, keep your eyes open. If you can come on Tuesday, keep your eyes open for any updates about that. Uh, but right now, our goal is for 1 o'clock on Tuesday, and we'll let you know if that time changes. We're going to have another container that comes the following week, which I, I didn't get a response. I'm sorry, Fred, I should have asked you. Do we have a day and time for the second container? I'm, I'm going to go with a no on that one. Is there the next week's container? Nothing on that one yet. Okay, so we're going to have a second one the following week, and we will update you on that when we get that. So if you have time to come and help us out with that, we would really appreciate that. Uh, before we pray this morning, is there anything in particular that we can pray about? Did you say Billy and Kinley? Okay, have his stomach. Okay. Okay. We'll be sure to pray for them. Anybody else this morning? Okay. And of course, like always, uh, I have my phone up here. If you are watching online and you have a specific prayer request, please text it into me and I'll make sure that we pray for it before our class is over. Uh, let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for another day that you've blessed us with. We thank you for uh, another Sunday where we get to come and worship you uh, and acknowledge you as our creator and bring you praise. Father, we pray that we do that every day of the week. We pray that we will always uh, try to bring glory to your name and try to praise you in everything that we do. But we thank you for the opportunity today, especially, that we have to set aside to come together as your family and spend time learning about your word, learning about your son, and giving you praise and honor for those things. Uh, Father, this morning we're mindful of a lot of people who may be ill. Uh, we're especially uh, thinking about Billy and Kinley as they're home this morning uh, with the stomach virus. Father, we pray uh, for their whole family and the things that they've been dealing with for the past couple of weeks. Uh, God, we just pray that you'll continue to uh, heal them, continue to lift them up and encourage them as they go through the remainder of this. God, anybody else who may be dealing with COVID, anybody else who may be dealing with direct effects or indirect effects, Father, we pray that you will just continue to bring us all through this, continue to help us to encourage one another, continue to help us to lean on each other. Uh, and Father, we pray that this whole thing will end soon, but regardless of what happens with it, we pray that you'll help us to keep the faith, to keep strong, and look forward to a day where we can come and be in heaven with you. Father, we pray that that day will come quickly. But we pray that until then, we will keep our eyes focused on you and on what we need to do while we're on this earth. We ask all this in Jesus' name.
Amen. So starting off this morning, uh, let me tell you, we're actually going to get into the Bible today. We haven't done that for a couple of weeks, so I, I hope you came prepared for that this morning. But let me catch us up to where we are so far. Where are we at this particular Sunday? You remember uh, the first week, of course, Mike was in here talking to us about the crucifixion of Jesus, setting us up with the death of Jesus uh, so that we can get into the resurrection a little bit easier. After that, we talked about the need that we have to discuss the resurrection. Remember, we did the survey, and one of the things that I, I think we found, if you were paying attention to the results on the screen, is that there are a lot of different thoughts, even among the members of the church here, about the resurrection. Whether it be Jesus' resurrection, whether it be the resurrection at the end of time, or it's just some of the little details about it. We noticed that there are uh, several different things that we all have some different opinions on. So there's that need to study this, to kind of help us all to figure out what's actually going on with this. But there's also, of course, we talked about the historical need, the apologetic need, and the theological need to discuss not just Jesus' resurrection, but also the future coming resurrection for everybody. And then last week we spent a little bit of time talking about the uniqueness of Jesus' resurrection. How there are claims out there that Jesus was just another one of the dying and rising gods how he's just like everyone that came before him, and so Jesus' story is not real. But as we looked at those stories, we noticed that there's nothing in those stories like Jesus at all. And even if there was, on the off chance that there was, there is something in Jesus that the others don't have, and that is historical evidence. And as Mr. Doug reminded me to point out this week, eyewitness accounts that the others do not have. And so we're going to spend some time talking about those over the next couple of weeks but as we shift into thinking about Jesus' resurrection specifically, what I would like for us to talk about today is Jesus' resurrection in the Old Testament. Uh, if we're going to talk about Jesus in the New Testament, then we have to talk about the things that lead up to Jesus. We have to talk about uh, the prophecies and the ideas and the religious world and the context that led into those things. The reason that we need to talk about this is because there is some confusion out there about the Old Testament and Jesus' resurrection. One of the things that I noticed as I was studying through some of the material for this is something that I would expect and maybe you would expect as well, that Jewish scholarship currently, at least mainstream current Jewish scholarship, still asserts that there is no historical precedent in the Old Testament for a resurrected Messiah. One of the, uh, one of the quotes that I took is that the Jews were not compelled to become Christians in the first century because as they read through their Old Testament, they did not see a developed idea of a death and resurrection of a Messiah. And so that's what uh, modern Jewish scholarship thinks. But let's bring it into even some of the modern Christian, quote-unquote, world. There are a lot of people out there who are going to say, what, the death of Jesus was plan B, right? Uh, the death of Jesus was not God's initial idea. God's initial idea was what the Jews maybe were looking for in the first place, and that was that Jesus would come and reign as a physical king. But then, of course, the whole death thing happened, and that was unexpected to God. And so, naturally, if death was plan B, and the church is plan B, then along with those things, what else is plan B? Resurrection, right? So, all of that to be said, we need to study and look is this something that is plan B, or is this what God intended from the beginning? Is this what he was leading up to 
this entire time. So we're going to spend some time today with Old Testament prophecy. And to do that, we're going to have to talk about some of the nature of Old Testament prophecy. We're going to have to talk about some of the things that we're going to be looking at when we deal with Old Testament prophecy. But before we get into any of that, let me do something that I haven't gotten a chance to do yet, and let me just open the floor for a minute. Uh, I want us to think uh, whatever you might know about Jesus and put the resurrection aside for a minute. Don't think about resurrection. Don't think about uh, any of the stuff we've talked about so far. I just want you to think about Jesus in general. What are some general prophecies that you know about Jesus? What do you know is in the Old Testament that talks about Jesus? Okay, he would suffer. Absolutely. Uh, We're going to Uh, I put all of these on the screen, so I'll show them in a minute which ones I've gotten ahead of. But you're like six ahead of me there, so I'm not going to spoil any for you. But yeah, there are several different points throughout the Old Testament that talk about the suffering, the mocking, the beating, and the death of Jesus. Do you know any specifically off the top of your head? Somebody said Isaiah 53 is the most famous uh, prophecy about Jesus' suffering. So yeah, absolutely, that is one of the ones that's there. Okay, what's Psalm 22 about? Okay, it's about Jesus. Uh, That is a general prophecy about Jesus. You're correct. Okay. No, it's okay. It's okay. You're exactly right. That's down there somewhere in verse 16, 17, 18, somewhere in there, Psalm 22. Uh, talking about the uh, bones of Jesus not being broken during the crucifixion. You're exactly right. I'm going to put you on hold for just a minute because we're coming back to Psalm 22. So, Yeah, we're, we're going to come back to Psalm 22 in just a minute. So I'm, I'm not ignoring you, but we will come back to it. What else? What are some other general prophecies that you know about Jesus from the Old Testament? Okay, born in Bethlehem. you remember where that is right off the top of your head? Micah 5. Okay, yeah. Uh, We're going to get to that in just a minute as well. I've got that one on the screen, but that's three down, so uh, I'm still not going to spoil the others for you. Uh, Yeah, okay, so there are some other general ones. Born of a virgin birth, okay, that's Isaiah 7. All right, so we remember some of those right off the top of our heads. Okay, Psalm 16, right? Psalm 16, we're going to talk about that one in just a minute as well. Okay, yeah, so from the beginning, we know that Jesus is there with God uh, before his incarnation. Uh, He's really there for the entire time. Uh, However long there was before creation and eternity, Jesus is there. However long there's going to be after this world ends, Jesus is still there. We get that from a lot of scripture as well. Depending on who you ask, there's somewhere between uh, 300 and 600 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. Um, I tend to lean more towards the conservative side of that, the the 300 end of it, because I I think the 600 end deals with a lot of analogies and maybe some connections that are stretches. Uh, But however you read those those prophecies, there are certainly a ton. There are a lot of prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. So uh, let me just list the ones that I had for you here. Right from the very beginning, what do you have in Genesis chapter 3? You have the very first prophecy about Jesus, uh, how Satan will bruise his heel, but Jesus is going to do what? 
bruise the serpent's head. All right, so that's right off the bat, we're going to get a prophecy about Jesus. In Genesis chapter 12, we're going to get a prophecy about Jesus being of the seed of Abraham. This is the promise to Abraham that through his seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is going to be quoted again in the New Testament to remind us of that one individual seed through whom all of the earth will be blessed. We get into the book of Isaiah, and it talks about uh, David. It's David's throne specifically. When you read Isaiah chapter 9, and you read verses 6 through 7, you read all of these names that the Messiah is going to take based on the fact that he is sitting on David's throne. Just a minute ago, we mentioned Micah 5 and verse 2, talking about the birthplace of Jesus. Uh, over here, we talked about Isaiah 7 and verse 14, about how Jesus was going to be born of a virgin. But then, of course, we also have several prophecies that are going to deal with the crucifixion, the death of Jesus. When we get to Psalm 41 and verse 9, we're going to see that the Messiah is going to be betrayed. Zechariah is going to go a little bit further into that in Zechariah chapter 11. He's going to tell us that the Messiah is going to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. We already mentioned Isaiah 53 talking about the death and the particular burial that he has is going to be mentioned in Isaiah 53 and verse 9. When we get to Psalm 22, which we mentioned a minute ago, it talks about how they cast lots for his garments. And then we get to Psalm 34 and verse 20, and again, we've got a prophecy that there are no broken bones. These are just a few very common ones, very popular ones that I pulled out just to show you a, a smattering of prophecies about Jesus throughout the Old Testament. So, moving into this, if there's 300 and some odd prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament, what are the prophecies about his resurrection? So, let me try to open the floor again. What comes to your mind when you think of Jesus' resurrection in the Old Testament? Okay, Psalm 16, uh, we're going to talk about that. Uh, here on uh, about three slides. So we'll get to Psalm 16. What else? Also Psalm 16. All right. What other prophecies are there of Jesus' resurrection? All right, it seems that we know one, and that's good. It's good that we know one, right? Um, and we don't really need any more than one, do we? Like, I mean, one prophecy is enough to prove the entirety of what we're trying to say today, that the Old Testament tells us that the Messiah will be raised. Yeah. The prophecy or the, the story of Jonah working as some kind of typological prophecy of Jesus. All right, that's a really good point. And that's one that I think we miss sometimes when we're trying to think about the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to talk about that in detail in a minute, so let me put that on hold for just a second. So we've got a couple that we can think of right off the top of our heads. But I think there's one thing that is probably for sure is that it's a lot harder to find resurrection prophecies in the Old Testament. Uh, they're not, they don't come to our mind quite as readily other than maybe Psalm 16 or Jonah. And so, even though they may not be as readily available in our minds, they are there. They do exist. And so what we need to do is we need to find these scriptures, and we need to actually place them in their context, and we need to see, okay, what do they show us about God's actual plan for a Messiah? 
And to do that, what we've got to do is we've got to look at the New Testament understanding of prophecy. Right? We've got to know what the New Testament tells us we should be looking for in the Old Testament about the Messiah. So, we get to Luke 24, and this is, of course, after the resurrection of Jesus. And he's there with his disciples, and he's shown them the holes in his hands, and he's eaten in front of them to prove that he's a real person. And then right after that, look at what he says in Luke 24 and verse 46. He says, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. So right off the bat, if we've got people out there who are saying that there is no prophecy in the Old Testament about the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus denies that. If you say there's no prophecy about the resurrection of Jesus, then you are actually denying what the Savior said. Jesus seems to think that there are scriptures in the Old Testament that talk about what has just happened to him. But then we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, our great resurrection chapter. And in verse 3, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So it's not just that Jesus was raised, but it's also the fact that He would be raised after three days that is somewhere in the Old Testament. And if there was anybody uh, almost as qualified as Jesus, obviously Jesus knows the Old Testament Scriptures better than anybody, but if there's anybody who's close, it's going to be the Apostle Paul. And Paul says... It's there. This is actually interesting when we read uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through uh, about 8. This is something that it looks like was an early church um, doctrinal statement, if you will. This was something that they might actually repeat to each other on a regular basis to remind themselves of the gospel of Christ. So as Paul opens this chapter, he's bringing up something that they would be familiar with in this particular statement prophesying or talking about the prophecies of Jesus's resurrection. So, shifting from that, we need to talk about our understanding of prophecy. We need to put this into our context so that we can understand as we look at these particular passages how we interpret them properly to see whether or not the resurrection of Jesus is actually there. Well, when we talk about how to interpret prophecy and we talk about the different views of it, there's a lot of different ways that people in the modern day interpret prophecy. Uh, there are going to be some people who say, well, you know, the Old Testament prophet was speaking only to his specific particular time and nobody else. There are going to be some people who say that, well, there was a, an immediate fulfillment within that particular prophet's time, but he was also talking about something else that came along later. There's also going to be some who talk about uh, progressive fulfillment of, of prophecy, in that it might have started to be fulfilled at one point, but isn't uh, completely fulfilled until seven or eight times later on somebody has addressed it. So there's, there's a lot of these different ones, and there's four or five different other ways that people look at it. I just want to deal with two today, uh, because I think understanding these two will help us to understand the prophecies we're about to look at. The first thing that we've got to deal with is the fact that the vast majority of Old Testament prophecy deals with Israel's own immediate future. When you go and you look at the Old Testament and you read the prophecies that are in there, they are almost all dealing with something that is specific to their time. As a matter of fact, the estimates are that only somewhere between 2 to 7% of Old Testament prophecies deal with anything that happens in the New Testament times. Now, 2 to 7% is still a lot of prophecies. 
that still leaves room for your 300 some odd prophecies about Jesus or the other prophecies about the destruction of Jerusalem or things like that. But that still leaves plus 90% dealing with, hey, Israel, here's what's going to happen if you don't follow God. You've got these conditional prophecies, of course, that they have uh, where they say, you know, if you'll turn, then yes, God will be on your side. God will bless you. If you don't turn, you're going to be sent into captivity. That's what 90 plus percent of the prophecies are going to deal with. But that 2 to 7% is going to be where we are focusing on as we deal with our uh, discussion of Jesus's resurrection. Now, even as we deal with some of these prophecies, we're going to have to look at it through two different lenses sometimes. The first lens is that some of these prophecies are going to be directly fulfilled. One of the ones that we've already talked about just a few minutes ago is one of the ones that we see directly fulfilled. When we get to Genesis chapter 3 and we talk about the serpent bruising Jesus's heel, but Jesus bruising the serpent's head. That is something that is not uh, contextual to Adam and Eve's time. That is something that is directly fulfilled hundreds of years later in Jesus's death and resurrection. However, there are some other prophecies that are going to have what's called either analogous or typological fulfillment. And what that means is that sometimes they are going to have an immediate application in the context that they are told in. But later on, the New Testament is going to show us the proper understanding of that particular prophecy. So uh, just an example of this that doesn't have anything to do with Jesus, but is still interesting. When we read the prophecies in Daniel 9, 27, 11, 31, and 12, 11 about the abomination of desolation, that was something that happened fairly soon after the book of Daniel. That was something that happened with Antiochus coming in uh, during the takeover of Jerusalem in 167. But it will also happen again later on, as Jesus is going to point out, in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So it was something that was going to be immediately relevant to Daniel's readers, but also something that was going to be fulfilled later on in the time or after the time of Jesus. So when we look at those things, a lot of times the New Testament authors are going to draw these prophecies together for us. Why do they have to do that? Well, I think there's a simple answer. It's because when the Jews read these prophecies, they were only looking at the immediate application. They were only looking at what it meant in their own history. They were also only looking at it from a physical perspective. Remember, they're looking for a physical Messiah. They're not looking for Jesus. And so the reason the New Testament authors have to do this is because when the Jews are reading these prophecies, even during Jesus's time, as they're seeing them being fulfilled, they still don't understand them as being references to Jesus. Even, and I think it's fair to say this, even the disciples who were with Jesus did not understand the prophecies about Jesus until after he was gone. Because they were still looking for a physical Messiah until the point where Jesus was raised into heaven, if you read Acts chapter 1. So, I think it's fair to say that pretty much none of the Jews understood the Old Testament prophecies like they were meant to be understood until we get to the time of the New Testament writings. After Jesus is gone and the Holy Spirit comes in and, remember, reveals all truth to the New Testament writers, now they get it. Now they understand what these prophecies were meant to say. And so, 
as we read a lot of these prophecies, we're going to have to consult the New Testament. We're going to have to look at the New Testament to give us the proper perspective of, uh, uh, of the interpretation. So we're going to put these into two categories this morning in these last few minutes. We're going to talk about what I'm going to call definite prophecies. These are prophecies that absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt refer to Jesus' resurrection in the Old Testament. There's no question about it, and the reason there's no question about it is because the New Testament tells us about these. The New Testament says this directly or analogously addresses the event of the resurrection. Then I'm going to put us into a second category of prophecies that are called less obvious prophecies. That's what I'm going to call them. Uh, you can call them whatever you want to call them. The reason I call them less obvious prophecies is because a lot of them are going to have this typological fulfillment, and they're going to be a little bit more ambiguous when you read through them. You might not see the resurrection of Jesus in them until you do a little bit of further study. And so, of course, the context is what's going to help us to determine what these are. So uh, it seems like we've got a pretty good handle on Psalm 16 right off the bat, and that's good. Uh, this is what I would call the absolute most definite prophecy about the resurrection of Jesus. When we go and we look at the context of Psalm 16, it's a psalm about David's trust in God, right? Uh, David is writing in a time of trouble. He asks for preservation. Uh, he knows that he is not going to be uh, moved in his faith. And so he writes this psalm that's going to have three different sections to it. Uh, it's a short psalm, so I'm going to read through it very briefly. In these first three verses, he's going to have his soul speak to God. He says, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones, in whom is all my delight. As he shifts from this, he's going to talk about the uh, folly of being in idolatry and instead the blessings of following God. He says, The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance in my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. And then here, as he leads into the verse we're going to be looking at, he's talking about the guidance and security that he has from God. He says, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. And then we get to verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Now, we've led up to all of this, and it seems like David is speaking to something in his immediate context for nine verses, right? seems like he's talking about something that is going on within his own life. And so that leads us to the question, is Psalm 16.10 referring to an immediate danger? Is it something that David is looking at within his own life and not thinking about something further? Well, this is what a lot of people uh, are going to talk about. A lot of commentators are going to say that Psalm 16.10 is actually David referring to an immediate battle that's coming up. Of course, we know that later on in David's life, he's going to get into a lot of wars. He's going to get into a lot of fights. And so they're going to say that Psalm 16.10 is actually a reference to a battle that's coming up that he's afraid of. And so this whole psalm is about David's trust in God. However, as we look a little bit deeper into the psalm, first of all, 
The language itself does not bear this out. Uh, as we read verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, that verb abandon there uh, refers throughout the Old Testament to leaving someone behind. And so what that means is that David's hope here is that he is not going to be left where? In the realm of the dead. And so what that means is he's not looking at being saved from an immediate danger. He's not looking at winning a battle that's directly in front of him. Matter of fact, it seems like he's actually okay to die with whatever's coming up. What he's thinking about directly in this passage is resurrection. He understands that God will save him. And so, uh, one other thing within the language here that I think bears this out is the fact that when you get to verse 10, he uses this word that's translated as holy one, which throughout all of David's writing is never used to refer to David. Matter of fact, it's almost uh, strictly, not always, but almost strictly a messianic term. So it seems like David's hope is set on some kind of resurrection that he understands to be connected to the Savior of the nation. And of course, this is why we can call this a definite prophecy. Turn over to Acts chapter 2 here. As we read Acts chapter 2, we're going to get to Peter preaching this very first sermon. And remember, we said that the disciples didn't understand the prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus until after Jesus ascended. And so at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes in and He falls on all of them. And at this point, they understand the truth, don't they? I think as Peter's preaching this sermon, this may be one of the very first times that he realizes what this psalm was talking about. So in verse 24, he says, God raised him up again, talking about Jesus, putting an end to the agony of his death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence. He is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will your Holy One undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, he died and he was buried and his tomb is with us unto this day. So because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. He was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This was the one that came to our minds immediately when we talked about prophecies about the resurrection of Jesus. And I think it, it absolutely should be, because this is the one that Peter says... This is a prophecy of Jesus' resurrection. So now, not only, if you say there's no Old Testament prophecies about the resurrection of Jesus, not only are you denying what Jesus said, not only are you denying what Paul said, you're denying what the very first gospel sermon said, as told by Peter. Paul is going to pick up this very same thing in Acts chapter 13, uh, as we read just a little bit on in his discussion there, uh, beginning in verse 34. In Acts 13, verse 34, Paul says, As for the fact that he raised Jesus up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, You will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. So, what they're telling us in these two passages is this. Psalm 16 is about Jesus. It has nothing to do with David as far as verse 10 goes. 
Maybe the first nine verses are dealing with David's trust in God. And that's good and that's fine. But when you get to that last verse, both Peter and Paul are going to say, this is about Jesus' resurrection and that's how it should be understood. So this is a definite prophecy about the resurrection of Jesus. We mentioned just a minute ago the story of Jonah, right? Uh, And of course, Jonah doesn't come right out and talk about a prophecy about Jesus. He doesn't come out and just give us, hey, there's going to be a Messiah that's raised. But you remember the story of Jonah, and you remember how he was supposed to go off and teach Nineveh, and he ran away instead because he didn't want to. And so while he's on the boat, the boat's getting tossed back and forth, and he tells the people, hey, the reason this is happening is because I've disobeyed God, and they throw him off the boat. You remember this giant fish comes up, swallows him, and he's in the belly of the whale for three days. You get that in Jonah 1, 15 through 17. In Jonah chapter 2, you're going to get Jonah praying to God about his own salvation. And in Jonah chapter 2, you're going to get, after the three days, Jonah coming back onto dry land. Jonah, in a sense, being metaphorically resurrected from wherever it was he had been for the last three days. The reason I'm calling this a definite prophecy about the resurrection of Jesus is because of the way Jesus addresses this in Matthew chapter 12. When you read Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 38, some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. Yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So we're going to call this a definite prophecy about Jesus because Jesus tells us that this immediate experience that Jonah had is something that is typologically fulfilled by Jesus' own resurrection. Let's get into Psalm 22. We've mentioned that a couple of times already today, so let's flip over there very briefly. In Psalm 22, uh, you're going to have that opening in context. You're going to have uh, the psalmist say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are, are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I have no rest. Whoever is writing this psalm is in extreme distress when they write it. Uh, they're having some real problems and they feel like God has abandoned them. Uh, We get a little bit later on in the psalm, and we read in verse 7 and then again in verse 12 about how all of his enemies are surrounding him at this point. We read in verses 14 through 16 about the great pain that he's dealing with. But throughout this entire psalm, we're going to see him turning to God and realizing that even though he feels this way, and even though he's oppressed like this, God will still save him. That's in verses 4 and 5, that's in verse 19, that's in verse 22 onward. So, We've got this psalm in context. We've got uh, David referring to himself in this situation. But then we get down to verse 22. He says, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from them. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord 
let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. And he goes on a little bit further. It seems like in this context, what David is talking about is some kind of afterlife in his own understanding. He feels abandoned by God. He feels the oppression of everything around him. But he knows that God will save him. And even if God doesn't save him, he knows there's something else coming afterwards. He knows that there's something better coming. Now, of course, this is less obvious because this whole psalm, especially these last verses that seem to talk about afterlife, are not quoted in the New Testament. But what is quoted is the very first verse. In Matthew 27, verse 46, Jesus is going to cry out, uh, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not going to quote the whole psalm there, but he's going to quote that opening. And the reason he does that is because he wants to invoke in his reader's mind a remembrance of the entire psalm to show them, hey, this psalm is being fulfilled in your presence. The entirety of it, the whole thing, it's all going to be fulfilled right here and now. This is the typological fulfillment of this whole psalm. He feels the same pain that David felt. He feels the same abandonment that David felt. He feels the same oppression that David felt. And yet he still knows that something better is coming. He still knows there's going to be something else that happens in three days. We even get an exact picture of the crucifixion in verses 16 through 18 back here. Uh, we mentioned just a minute ago. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So Jesus invokes this to remind everybody here, hey, this whole psalm is happening in your presence. And the remainder of the psalm, that afterlife stuff, that resurrection stuff that comes up in those last nine verses, it's going to happen too. So in this case, Less obviously, Psalm 22, 22 through 31 deals with uh, the resurrection of Jesus. Of course, we already mentioned Isaiah 53. Uh, we talked about uh, the, all of the things that go on within the Psalms uh, or within that uh, particular uh, passage. Oh, oh, look at that. It's already up on the screen. Uh, he talks about all of, the, uh, all of the different things, all of these different characteristics about Jesus uh, how he's not handsome, how he's rejected, how he carries grief, how he's pierced and crushed, and yet he didn't open his mouth. And yet we get down to verses 9 through 11, and what we're going to realize is like we've already mentioned about Isaiah 53, that death of the Messiah is part of the plan. But then he goes on, after talking about the death, he says, he shall see his offspring. Now you can't see your offspring if what? You're dead. Now of course Jesus doesn't have any physical children, but what does he have? He has spiritual offspring in the church. Jesus is going to go on, the Messiah is going to go on to be resurrected, to be raised. Uh, and of course, we get this last verb here, uh, the, the verb prolong within that passage. Oh, I'm getting all over the place here, I'm sorry. Uh, we see that last verb that's used about prolonging his life is often used throughout the Old Testament. That particular verb is often used about life after death. So, uh, I've got five minutes. I'm going to breeze through this last one here very quickly. Um, in Hosea chapter 6, this is one that's debated. Uh, nobody, nobody's really on the same page about this one. But I think this probably is a less uh, obvious prophecy about the three days. When we get to Hosea chapter 6 in its context, uh, Hosea is, of course, talking to an immediate 
problem. He is talking about the things that are going on in Israel and how unstable their relationship with God is and how God has to constantly go and buy them back. And so within that context, he does make an immediate prophecy. He says, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So he is speaking to Israel's immediate situation. And he does say God will bring them back to life on a metaphorical third day. However, when we get to the book of Hosea, often throughout Hosea, he is going to connect God's children, Israel, to God's son, the Messiah. That happens throughout. There are prophecies that we don't question, like Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, about, I will call my son out of Egypt. We don't question that that is about Jesus, and yet he is also speaking to an immediate context about God's children, Israel. So I think we could probably look here and say this is a less obvious prophecy about Jesus' resurrection, in which case God's children, Israel, will be metaphorically raised if they turn. If they turn back to God, they will be metaphorically made alive on the metaphorical third day. But the other side of this is that God's actual son will be actually made alive on the literal third day. Now, this is a freebie. Uh, You're getting this one uh, for no extra charge. Uh, This is not a prophecy at all. But this is an interesting connection. Remember Genesis chapter 1. What's created on the third day? Anybody remember right off the top of your head? I can hear you singing the song. What's day three? Day three, God made what? Grass and flowers and trees, all right? On the third day in Genesis chapter 1, 9 through 13, God makes vegetation. He makes plants. He makes seeds. He makes things that are put into the ground and that will eventually spring back up on the third day. When we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what imagery does Paul use for the general resurrection? He says, the resurrection body is like a seed that's planted into the ground, and yet will come back up. Just as a quick aside, I tell my class at Faulkner all the time that no matter how many times you read a passage in the Bible, if you've read it a million times, there will always be that million and once time where you find something new. I can't tell you how many times I've read 1 Corinthians 15, and I saw this Friday night. Like, as I was studying for this, this is the first time I've ever seen this, and I just thought it was super cool. When we read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we get to that particular passage in verse 37, he talks about uh, the body, the resurrection body being as vegetation, but then he's going to go on, and he's going to say, all flesh is not the same flesh. There's one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another of fish. Day 6. He's going to say, there's also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one. Day five. Verse 41. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. As Paul describes the resurrection, he's going to do creation in reverse. And I think that's super cool. One more thing just to show this to you. In this same chapter, Paul uses this word to describe in verses five through eight, Jesus' resurrection appearance. Jesus' resurrection shows up in many ways throughout the New Testament. But this word that Paul used, that Jesus appeared to many people, Jesus appears to these people, that specific word is a form of the Greek word horao. Which, when you read the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, 
is used in the creation account only one time. Guess on which day? Day three. I don't know. It's interesting. It's cool. Maybe there's nothing there, but I think it's a very fascinating connection that you can make between this whole three-day thing. That's one of those, it's not even a definite prophecy. It's not even a less obvious thing. It's just a cool connection. It's there, uh, and so that's one thing that we can bring up. Um, so, Mr. Jim, uh, I'm sorry, I said that one more time. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, along those same lines uh, in Luke chapter 24. He's going to talk about all of these prophecies and all of these things that come through, not just the prophets, but at other points throughout the Old Testament as well. Uh, so I think that's a, that's a good thing to make. So I'm going to wrap it up because the bell is rung. But are there prophecies about Jesus' resurrection? Unequivocally, yes. They're there. Jesus will be raised from the dead. Um, so that leaves us with one final question. I'm going to skip all of these last points. If Jesus was raised from the dead, he is the Messiah. How do we know that Jesus is raised from the dead? We're going to talk about that next week. Think about that over the next week. And we're going to get into the actual resurrection accounts as we get into uh, next Sunday. So thanks for paying attention this morning, and I'll see you next week.